You're listening to the Crowdfunding Nerds Podcast, a podcast that will help you succeed before, during, and after your crowdfunding event. And now, here is your host, Andrew Lowen. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another awesome episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. I am your host, Andrew Lowen, and I am joined by Sean and not Rick. In Rick's place, we have Galen McCown of Galen's Games. He recently went to Kickstarter and funded Super Snipers. He has a blog where he talks about all the things he would have done differently and all the things he, I guess, that he did well and everything in between. And um, I'm excited to have you because we get to dive deep into all the things that you've been learning. Um, hi, welcome to the show, Galen. Thanks so much. Great to be here. And now it's time for Nerd News. So GameFound has just released a, a blog post which has some very interesting updates that we'll clear link in the show note for you to check out. One thing they've introduced is an idea of paying over time, which is an interesting concept because I suppose if you have these larger pledges, like all-in pledges, they give you the option to pay in increments. They don't seem to take a cut from that either. So it's just, I think that's going to kind of bring a lot more people into those bigger ticket items who are maybe a bit more comfortable paying a little bit each month than all in one month. They've also added a super backer tag. So I think it might have called, it might have a different name, but essentially it's a, a super backer, which sort of allows people to know that you're well-established. This isn't your first radio and kind of adds that social proof to your comments. They, they've also incorporated this um, this tax. Well, they, they kind of take over the tax for you. So it's not just included in the pledges. They I think they register you for tax and they kind of take over that headache, especially dealing with the EU. So that's, I think that's a huge sell point, right? Um, of a Kickstarter now is that if you don't want to deal with your taxes in, in Europe, well, GameFound is going to take that off your plate. Then they've got um, poll results. They've, they've done an update with poll results where before you could see the results in real time and that was influencing obviously people voting. But now the, the poll results only display at the end of a certain time period. So it kind of means it's a bit anonymous. You, it's not influencing uh, your voting, which I think it's an interesting concept. And they've just reached over 1,000 project, projects launched on the platform, which is a nice milestone for them. So congratulations to the team at GameFound. And those are some really interesting updates. And it sort of reminds us of our predictions where we, you know, I think one of us talked about, I think it was either you or Richard talked about sort of this you know, pay monthly installments. And that's exactly what GameFound has yeah. introduced. So that one, that one got... Uh, fulfilled pretty early <laughs> that's pretty crazy we looked back at our 2020 well our predictions for 2022 and i think i might have made fun of rick for saying pay over time was not really um a thing however it is still 2022 and i think rick is right and by the way i believe the game found uh badge is called the pledge master so it's oh, like okay. the page master but better yeah, and then I believe um, they they actually do give a, a second badge. It's like the Twitter blue check, but it's the game GameFound green check. It's the verified badge, and though that's given out by GameFound to uh, select users that are recognized in the gaming world and have been verified by their staff. So I think that that's going to be a. I mean, it could be a really big deal. Definitely want to um, grab that for myself. Uh, because my um, the five people who care who I am would want to see that that green check. Well, it was important because if people try to impersonate you, then they 
could say, oh, you know, my house was broken into and, you know, could come up with some story like, you know, like anything could happen, you know. So I think it's a, it's a good, good move to get people who are in the limelight, so to speak, to to verify their identity so that someone doesn't yep. mimic their, <laughs> mimic their. You know, um, I actually find this is, it's weird when, I don't know if you noticed this, Galen, but during your Kickstarter, when somebody responds or even on your social media, um, I notice this for deliverance when I make a post and then somebody else responds asking a question, we'll have a fan respond and answer their question. And that person feels as though the creator responded. Sometimes the fan doesn't respond with as uh, or with, with all the information or maybe they're a little bit toxic or something in their response. Um, I've had several situations in which the the fans of the project that posed the original question get really pissed off, you know, and assume that it was the creator that responded to them it, when that's actually not the case. Have you had that experience? Uh, not not the negative one so far, uh, but definitely with people kind of, you know, chiming in, answering questions, which is actually, you know, a, a wonderful thing to do because I can't be on 24 hours a day and I sometimes miss things. So it's wonderful. I, I think it comes back to, you know, if it's, if it's my page, it's the Galen's Games page. It's, you know, Super Snipers community group. Ultimately, it's kind of my job to, you know, uh, police, not police that community, but, you know, make sure, you know, verify their answers or, or kind of, you know, come back in if somebody's uh, giving somebody a hard time. I think it ultimately should be a reflection of you. And uh, I feel like I have a pretty good community as far as that goes. Yeah. In terms of this pay over time feature, sort of make payments a bit easier for people. Again, I don't know if you want to talk about, you had a certain pledge level, which sort of essentially did the same thing, which is sort of provided a an, an easier entry point for some people who maybe are suffering some maybe financial difficulties. You want to talk a little bit about why you did that and how you came about incorporating that into your campaign? Yeah, absolutely. So I was influenced by uh, Bez Shahiri. I hope I'm saying her name correctly. Uh, she had, um, I post about this actually on the uh, crowdfunding uh, Facebook group there. Um, she has, uh, she had a campaign and uh, she had a uh, reduced cost pledge level uh, for folks who had financial barriers, otherwise couldn't afford it, a significantly reduced cost level um, that was available. Uh, and then uh, when you pledged, so I pledged a normal amount, one of the add-on options you had was to uh, add extra money to help support additional lower tier pledges. And I just walked away from that whole experience feeling really good about it. Uh, I felt good about backing the game. I felt good about, you know, kind of what the creator was doing. And I felt really good that I was helping somebody else doing that. And, um, you know, I had kind of put that out there, um, not initially considering it for Super Snipers, really thinking of it as something that probably would only work for kind of a smaller game and on a smaller scale. And, and she challenged me on that. She said, I don't see why bigger creators wouldn't be able to do this too. Uh, so I gave it a shot. I started out with um, just 10 uh, reduced pledge levels. I did, um, you know, $25. And at the time, the major pledge level was 48. Uh, but you get everything you get in the 48 for 25. Um, and I just put it out there. This is not an early bird. This is, uh, you know, designed for uh, people who otherwise wouldn't be able to afford the game. Um, you can kind of opt yourself in or out. So I'm not going to be I'm not going to be checking. I'm not going to be asking anybody to provide proof or anything like that. Um, and ultimately it was, uh, I started out with 10, they were, they were gone in like eight minutes, uh, in the beginning and I got, uh, some good press for it. I had some people kind of share around in some bigger groups like board game revolution and some other places, um, and actually ended up churning 
up a number of full pledge levels of people who heard about the game because of this. And then also, um, you know, I got a $300 backer for one of my prototypes who said he was, you know, kind of inspired uh, by this and he just wanted to do something a little bit more to kind of support this idea. And I had enough people uh, support throughout the campaign that I was able to ultimately open up 20 more of those pledges and do 30 overall by the end of the campaign. Uh, I hope more people do it. Uh, it's, it's not, it's not, I don't think of it as a loss, really. I think, I think they're mostly pledges that I otherwise wouldn't have gotten or people who would have pledged at a dollar that had incentive to jump up while these were still available whenever they became available. So I really thought it was a win-win overall. I found that to be very interesting because I, I normally am kind of, I'll say salty when it comes to the um, people acting in the self-interest of, or in the interest of others and not only themselves when you add in full anonymity. But I mean, it seems to me that this actually worked out decently well. And also you kind of figured out that there was a, a little bit of a, a problem with the actual price and what backers had, um, you know, what they were, rather the, the value that they perceived and, and the price, there was a little bit of a, a disparity. And um, you actually ended up, I think you ended up putting in an additional tier at like $35. Um, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. And where did that come from? I was uh, I was kind of following along. As yeah, the... sure. So that whole process, what had happened is I had um, I had a great start to the campaign. Uh, I you know I funded in thirty six hours um, under thirty six hours, so that was really nice. You know, it was within that two day limit. Felt really good about making that window. People really kind of showed up, and then it just it just died. It just, it just stayed really for every, you know, back I was getting in, I was losing and it and it was, I couldn't figure out what was going on for a bit. And, um, I had, uh, uh I'd watched, uh, Alex from board game co was kind of doing, you know, what was, what was on crowdfunding that week. And he was one of my previewers, uh, very positive about the game. One of my best previews. And, uh, he came to the campaign and he had an issue with the price. He said, you know, I think this campaign should be doing a lot better than it is. What's the issue. I think it's this, price point, you know, he said, whether it's fair or not, you're talking about a, you know, a fast two player puzzly dueling game, you know, people are going to put this in the same realm as something like Patchwork or Jetpack Joyride. And these are $25, $30 games off the shelf. I'm asking for $48 plus $15 shipping, <laughs> you know, I'm putting you over that 60 mark. And again, you know, the perceived kind of value, like, hey, this game sits in this category. Um, I'm, you know, I'm looking at spending more around $35 for this. So he had brought it up. Um, I had kind of shopped the idea around to a larger audience. I ended up a great conversation with another publisher who really felt quite convinced that the price point was what was hamstringing the campaign. Um, her suggestion was to kind of, you know, cut, cut and do the whole thing over. Tell my backers, hey, you know, I didn't quite get this right. Uh, you know, let's, I'm going to get you a better you know, deal and I'll come back. And, and again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell anybody else that that wouldn't be the right decision for me. That just didn't feel right. Um, I felt like that funding goal was a promise. And once that funding goal was made, I was on the hook for that promise. And I, I, I don't know, I feel strongly about that personally. So um, the next question was like, what do you do about this? Right. And I got to tell you, I floated a lot of ideas that probably would have been disastrous for me. Uh, I was thinking about, okay, so you know, because once it, if people don't know uh, on Kickstarter, you can't um, once you made a pledge level, you can't you can't adjust it. You can't change mm -hmm. that actual pledge level. Right. You can you can add new ones. 
Um, you can uh, change the duration for how long it's out there. There are some tricks you can do, but you, you can't actually change that pledge level. I couldn't, I couldn't change the price of what was out there. And um, so I, I was really considering, uh, you know, kind of, hey, do I make a deluxe version of the game and, you know, offer another t- and keep that at the $48 tier and have to explain to people that even though it says it's this, it's actually this. <laughs> and then bring in a $35. I went through a lot of different uh, ideas. I ultimately um, uh, reached out to Gabe uh, Barrett. I paid for a consultation. I sat down with him and we talked it through. And he had brought up the super saver. He said, this is, you know, this, I like this. This is a really popular thing. He said, what if you did something like this? What if you did a pay what you want level? And I, I didn't ultimately go with that. But what I did do was I took uh, some of the add-ons that I had, uh, you know, add-ons and upgrades that I had waiting and the stretch goals. And I, I did a couple things. I immediately upgraded the base game, the game that everybody's getting. I went ahead and said, okay, so the, you know, the tokens in the game are going to acrylic. We're going with the linen finish on the cards. Uh, we're going with the high quality drawbacks. I'm just going to bring all these things in that I had waiting out there. So I, I made the base offering uh, more attractive. Uh, and then I offered a tier where you could get that for $35 only during the campaign. Um, and uh, with none of the extras. And then I beefed up the current $48 level uh, that everybody had already pledged at to include a mini expansion, you know, a free uh, print and play and uh, digital make your own map pack. And so I, I beefed up the $48 level that was there and I created a $35 level. And then I really just, it was scary to do, uh, you know, at the point that I pressed the button and I put those things in there and I communicated the things in the updates, you know, any number of things could have happened. Uh, you know, all my $48 levels could have dropped to 35 and nobody else came in and I would have lost money from it, right? Like there was, it was a little scary to do, uh, but ultimately it, it did revive the campaign mid-campaign. Probably wouldn't have the same impact if I got it right in the beginning, uh, but it did, uh, you know, all of a sudden, you know, backers started coming back in in larger numbers and the money started coming and a lot of people jumped from the $1 pledge to the 35 because I did put that kind of limitation that it was only going to be out there during the campaign. There was also a big boost at the end of a lot of people from the $1 jump into that 35. Uh, it was a popular offering. I lost very, very few $48 backers. Um, I actually had some people also jump up to that with the things I added there. So yeah, that's the adjustment in the nutshell. I'm pretty happy with it. As far as I remember, you also surveyed your audience before you yes. made those adjustments. Maybe we'll talk about that process and what kind of questions you asked. Thank you for saying that, because that was actually a super important part of it too. Um, you know, right. I had I had an idea. I was getting that feedback. I spoke to Gabe and he, that was something he um, really pushed to. He said, have you, you know, have you asked your backers? And at the point I was talking to him, I had, I had started that survey um, and he talked about doing something similar with Robomon in the middle of the campaign, uh, trying to figure out what was going on, surveying his backers and realizing that offering a lower pledged tier, you know, uh, he had a, a separate standalone game that he was offering that, that, that brought a lot of people in that couldn't afford the full price. But anyways, I, um, yeah, I created a survey and some of the things I checked in about, um, the main thing I checked in about it, you know, was like, what is your feeling on, you know, $48, for super snipers is it you know is this a good deal is this a reasonable price is it a little overpriced is it very overpriced and then i also ask you know what do you think when you look at a game like super snipers what where do you think uh what would you think the price point would be um and so uh there were a couple other questions but those were the main pieces of data i had a, a really good turnout on the survey a lot of people answered people were engaged with that which was great oh and also uh you know if you're backing at the current level you know if you're not backing at a physical level why not 
you know, is it because you don't want it? Is it because it's too expensive? Uh, you just don't have the funds right now. You know, I gave some options there. And it ended up that uh, well over a third of the people who responded um, felt that the price was too high, weren't backing uh, at level uh, at a physical level because it was too high, and that the majority of people felt that the correct price level would be somewhere around $35, $40. And so that really helped me kind of, I mean, do a couple things. It, it uh, validated uh, you know, what the concerns I was told probably were. You know, I felt validated about pinpointing what the concerns were. It gave me you know, a kind of some guideposts about where to, where to land with this next um, pledge level. Um, and lastly, I also, you know, when I introduced all this stuff, I got to introduce it as, hey, I listened, right? I, you know, I, this was what, here's the results from the survey. This is what I heard. And this is what I'm doing about it. And, you know, and people felt, uh, people felt listened to, and it really helped. I think that's, that's key. It really, really shows when people feel like they're, they're listening. And it's great that you had so many people respond as well. I would hate to send out a survey and maybe anyone fills it out. Now, another thing that you were doing sort of before your campaign and as it was going and even afterwards is that you decided to write a blog and not many people do this. And I, I believe it was a weekly blog. It was quite frequent. I know you've been posting it on in the group and it's, you know, I suppose it's, it's uh, been very, you've really gone into like all details. You haven't really held anything back and it's going to be a great resource for, I think, first time backers is kind of, well, first time creators to look at your journey and say, okay, well, look at all the things I've got to think about and all the things you've learned. So maybe talk a little bit about the motivations of why you started that and maybe some of the challenges of, I'm sure it was an extra thing. Some weeks it probably felt like, oh, I've got to get this out. So maybe uh, talk about the advantages and disadvantages of writing a blog. Sure. So the origin of that, I, um, guys have probably read the same books. I've read Jamie Stagmeyer's book and Gabe's book and, you know, read the blogs. And, you know, one, one of the pieces of advice that you get a lot is, you know, um, Andrew, you talk about this all the time too, um, you know, give something back to your community, right? Find, find a way to, you know, um, be whatever useful <laughs> for the other people in your community and, and not just in a way, uh, not just when you're selling your game. Right. And so, I wasn't entirely sure how to do that um, originally, and I, you know, I'd seen a lot of people do blogs before, and I, I decided that that was the way to do it. And to be honest, when I started the blog, I, I didn't quite know the direction it would go. Um, I very quickly kind of course corrected around the feedback I was getting from what people found useful or not. But I think um, if there's anything, and then I'm doing differently with it, um, I think uh, one is kind of the transparency, and I'm not saying I'm the only transparent blog out there, but I, I just put it all out there that, you know, the real dollars and cents that I'm spending, uh, exactly what I'm spending it on, what the results of those things are, where I screwed up, uh, you know, I, I just, and, but the other key thing, so there, there's that transparency, but then there's also the kind of, uh, it's not exactly real time, but uh, it, it's presented more as a case study. I'm not, I, I do offer analysis as well, but I don't think anybody should take my analysis all that seriously, to be honest. Uh, you know, there's, there's, if you want to kind of like copy a campaign, you know, copy Andrews, copy Gabe's, copy Dave Beck's, you know, copy something that was really successful. But what I'm offering is kind of a minute to minute, you know, what it actually looks like, what the actual results are from the things, you know, so, right, I hire a pre-marketing campaign. Well, you know, how soon do I see my email list go up? What does that actually look like? And I start tracking the numbers week to week, right? And, you know, what, what does that actually mean for my pre-launch page, you know, and what does that actually mean for my Facebook groups? And, you know, um, and so I wanted people to be able to see that because that's what I really wanted. I, I knew what the advice was, but I didn't really know what it would look like in real time. Um, I think also kind of 
getting into a bit of the psychology of what it's like to be at all these different points. Um, you know, uh, all, all those things that we know we have terms for, you know, sunken cost theory and, and you know, like just different things. Well, what's it actually feel like in the moment, right? Like <laughs> how, how desperate do you get? How, how hard do you work for that one backer, you know, in the middle of the campaign? And, and what is it like to see your, you know, those numbers shoot up and then stop? Um, I think all of that has been useful. You know, I've heard from people that run campaigns that said, wow, you know, you really, I forgot what that felt like, but that's, <laughs> you're exactly right. That's, I remember, as you say it, I can feel it in my bones. And then other folks who are just a few steps behind me were thinking about doing this. Uh, you know, it probably discouraged some people, but a lot of other people just feel better kind of knowing, you know, knowing what to expect uh, and knowing kind of what's realistic. Um, so, yeah, I think... It's been fun to do. Yeah, I do it weekly. I'm going to probably keep it up all the way to delivering because I think all of that is interesting in a case studies uh, kind of situation. I don't think there are enough case studies out there. I think there's a lot of a lot of analysis, a lot of looking back, a lot of, uh, you know, hey, this was a great campaign and looking back, this is what I did right kind of stuff, but not enough, you know, uh, case studies. So, mm-hmm. if it, it felt good, you know, reading your blog, you're right that there is a lot of uh, the way I consider it is a lot of theory out there you should do this, you should do that. And, you know, I've written, I mean, I wrote the marketing chapter in Gabe's, you know, Kickstarter advice book, I read 71 pages or so. And there's a ton of theory in there. It certainly is based on experience. However, it's a lot of saying you should do this, you should do that. And what it, what's really nice about looking at your project as an individual case study is that you get, I mean, it feels like you get every element of a campaign that's very important, you get meaningful analysis of a firsthand case study. And um, that's quite uncommon. It's really uncommon because people are very private or maybe even embarrassed. I think everybody in, you know, that makes things has imposter syndrome at some level. And so people don't want to share because they feel like they'll either get made fun of for not doing it right or something of that sort. And it's also the time factor. Yeah, that's true. It takes time and creative energy to actually write meaningful stuff. Did you feel any of that when you were considering taking on that task of kind of cataloging what, you know? Yeah, I definitely, I, you know, certainly I I deal with imposter syndrome for sure. Like why would anybody want to read my blog? And, And luckily, you know, I luckily, and to anybody listening to this, you know, um, if, if somebody uh, says something that has an impact on you, let them know. I mean, it's so meaningful, right? Like to get that feedback and know that that actually matters. I, I have gone from kind of imposter syndrome to more feeling like an obligation, like, oh, I, I really need to do this because somebody's waiting to read this <laughs> next week. And that, that feels great. You know, that's a, that, that was a nice feeling. I think, um, you know, in terms of, yeah, it is a lot of work. Uh, there are definitely weeks where I don't feel like it uh, or I'm not exactly sure what to write about. Uh, but I, I think those always spur maybe some of the more interesting ones uh, as, as I, you know, dive into some facet I wouldn't otherwise be able to. It, one of the things I wanted to do with this too, right off the bat, is I think um, I, I think there's this, and I don't want to speak for everybody, I, I but I think like a lot of things in America, there's uh, this illusion of meritocracy um, with uh, with these campaigns. Like it's just the best ideas, right? Just the people with the best games do the best on Kickstarter and that's it, right? And and it's not really true. Like there, 
you, you, there's a there's a lot of upfront costs, uh, at least the way I did it, you know, and I, and I know people do better and they do worse. But, um, you know, there is a certain level of kind of I'm not saying I'm not taking anything away from people who do it. This is this is hard work, you know, um, and uh, people deserve uh, credit for for what they achieve. And um, you have to be at a certain level of privilege to just even enter into this arena. Right. Like mm-hmm. I, I had to have some expendable income to do what I just did, period. Uh, and and so I wanted to kind of like, I don't know, t- t- remove that veil a little bit. I think that's an important one because I, I think people are going in who, uh, you know, Gabe talks about this often, like, oh, you know, I want to run a Kickstarter. Oh, you know, how much money do you got to spend on marketing? Oh, I've got nothing. Like, yeah, you're not there yet, man. You, <laughs> you, you need a side job first. And, yeah. uh, and, and I think that's really important so that because so often you, you see people put their best foot forward, right? You know, what you see, uh, you see somebody who's just incredibly prolific and they're, you know, they're posting every day and they seem to have 10 designs on the burner at all times. And it's like, oh, man, how do they do that? Why am why can't I do that? And, you know, well, I can't do that because I also whatever I, I'm not again, I'm not picking on anybody, but like I also have to take care of my kid. I also have a day job. You know, um, I have a marriage I got to keep together here, too. Like there when you see that level of productivity, there's usually sacrifices uh, and they're not always pretty, right? And so I think people need a more realistic view of kind of uh, what this takes and how it gets pulled off. I don't know if you've seen, there was a video of a, a guy who for a month created fake posts as an influencer. He used AI to like show him like mm-hmm. traveling in places and meeting celebrities and it was all fake. And it was just sort of just remind me of that, you know, people always put their bit, uh, best foot forward on social media, but it, you know, in that case, it was all fake. You know? <laughs> You know, he created that persona. I think what you're saying is certainly true. And even as marketers, we have to be careful that we don't make any promises, you know, because it, it is a logical fallacy. It's called a non sequitur. It doesn't follow to say, well, it worked for this person. It's going to work for you. Well, mm-hmm. it worked for this person. It might work for you. You know, there's a lot of factors that go, go involved. So we always want to be careful trying to manage people's expectations where if it, if it works and it's great, wonderful. But, you know, there there's a a real grind to running a Kickstarter campaign. And there's, I suppose, sacrifice, sacrifice of income, of time that's going to take you away from your family. And so just getting people in the right state of mind, I think is, is key. I think your blog is certainly going to help people come to that realization that, look, <laughs> this is this is the the real deal. You know, it's not, it's not the uh, Photoshop version, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I think that the, uh, as you said, Galen, I think the barriers to entry are increasing and are rather have increased to a different standard than five years ago. Um, or, you know, I mean, I'd say you had a time, um, gosh, in like 2014, 2012, when you could just come up with an idea that seemed pretty good and have some stuff scribbled out, um, maybe stuff that you printed out that looked halfway decent at a local printer for your prototype. You know, Cards Against Humanity is a great example of that, something that raised whatever it was, $14,000 or $12,000. Now, I mean, they've raised millions and millions of dollars through distribution because that was a really great game that people wanted. And there really was no other way to for them to make that exist other than Kickstarter. And now you have what seems to me that uh, this, this kind of a, I don't know if the right word is a juxtaposition, um, but you have a very high barrier to entry in the board game space. It's very hard to get your game uh, chosen by a publisher and then brought all the way through to its release. 
Um, there are people that have done it. You know, there are, I mean, a couple of games that I really like, the Lord of the Rings, Journey of the Middle Earth game. Somebody had to come up with that idea. It probably started out on post-it notes and paper and all of that, just like mine. And it was brought through all the way to fruition, a game with extremely high production value. Uh, I was going to say Marvel Champions, but the one I was thinking of was Dice Throne. Somebody had to make that. And it was probably not the, the company founder. And yet, you know, that company published it. You have just such a low percentage chance to get an idea of yours published by somebody else that requires them to invest lots of money and really stake a portion of their company's future or maybe their entire company's future on you. I know, for example, you know, Stonemaier games, they're only going to produce really one game a year. What maybe, maybe two, but that is, you know, the the game they choose is so important to the future of their company. Those that barrier to entry is quite high. So Kickstarter was the solution to that. You know, for video games, the Steam store was a major solution to that. But Kickstarter, even to this day, Kickstarter game found, you, you know, the the board game crowdfunding systems, they are the still the solution to that. However, it seems that more people have jumped on the bandwagon where they want their projects to come to life. And so how do you differentiate your product with all of the others? And it, it seems to me that major number one thing, major importance is visibility. When you launch your campaign, if it's funded versus if it's not, then it's it's an immediate difference maker. It's like you're trying to put things on your resume. And if you add, you know, four years of military service, then you have something I, I don't and I can't put on my resume or a college degree or real experience in a related field or whatever. Like we're looking to gain things like that. But because it's, you know, Kickstarter or um, crowdfunding games it's in essence you kind of have to almost it has to appear as though your game is finished yeah wouldn't you say is <laughs> that like another difference maker yeah no it's uh that that's 100 percent uh kind of the expectation you know somewhere what do they say around 90 percent? but it has to look like yeah it's a real game and it has to show up with those previewers and that prototype needs to look like a real game and I don't know, it's not entirely a bad thing either. You know, uh, if, uh, you know, if it was 2014 and uh, right after the Cardboard Edison Award, I, you know, put Super Snipers up on Kickstarter and I had to develop and deliver it by that following summer, the game would not be nearly as good as it is. Uh, not even close, right? Like all that time I had to put into making it, you know, a real finished mostly finished product that is almost ready to go to manufacturing after a few more art pieces or whatever that that was all time well spent in game development right i learned so much about the game design it has evolved and improved so much so in some ways you get a better product because of that but it it, it is it's squeezing out a lot of people mm-hmm. um, and, and it's and it's squeezing through a lot of people there's a lot of successful kickstarters that like you know uh, are pretty financially ruinous <laughs> for mm-hmm. people with what they've actually invested in it. And, you know, and, and if, if you're happy with that, that's wonderful. But, you know, I see a lot of, a lot of one and done Kickstarters and there's a reason, you know, you don't see those companies anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And part of it, I think, you know, you, um, I always think about, I don't know if you guys watch the UFC. I actually don't watch UFC anymore, but I used to watch it 
religiously, uh, using that term loosely. And one of the major moments of UFC was the Ultimate Fighter season one. There was this, uh, you know, there were a bunch of ragtag fighters of all different kinds. And Dana White was the president of the UFC. He came in and he just yelled at everybody. He was upset because people were acting like teenagers in a dorm room and they weren't taking things seriously. And he gave a speech, I would say, is probably one of the more memorable speeches I've heard in my life that would be motivational and challenging, uh, which is, do you want to be an effing fighter so that we don't actually have to bleep it out? That's what I will call it. In essence, he said, this is very hard. It's miserable and difficult, but the reward is worth it if you try hard. And it really inspired a lot. In fact, a lot of those people from season one ended up making over seven figures with the UFC. A lot of those people started out, one guy started out, Kenny Florian uh, started out at 190 pounds. And now, and then he ended up fighting at 145 pounds uh, later. It's like, how did you lose so much weight? Um, and, he, you know, you were competitive in season one of The Ultimate Fighter. And now you're competitive years later, weighing 40 pounds less. And uh, he, I went on to host BattleBots and all sorts of other cool things. It, it's kind of in the same way as a business owner, because that's what you are if you go to Kickstarter with a game. A lot of people learn that they do not want to be owners of a business. And that's just very unfortunate. I, I think that um, it's worth it, though. It's worth it to, to, to attempt and to, I mean, if, you, if you're a one and done company, uh, let's say Galen, if you decide to produce super snipers and then decide not to produce any other games in the future, and maybe you sell the stock or sell the rights to another company so they can continue fulfilling it. And then you decide to get out of the game entirely. I do not look at that as a failure. I think no. that is a huge success and a massive feather in your cap and basically a college degree that you earned in <laughs> real life. You know, it's like some other achievement was unlocked. That's extremely difficult. Yeah, I agree. I, I don't want to sound disparaging of, you know, that is a massive achievement. Any, anybody, I mean, we're, we're so niche. Like we, you know, we, we think there's a lot of us because we speak with each other all the time, but you know, when you go out in the real world and you tell somebody, Hey, look, I made this game. They're like, what the, you know, how that's amazing. Oh. You know? So yeah, that, that's it. That's a big deal. I agree. I agree. And I think there's, there's a compounding problem here because not only is it harder to grow on Kickstarter, well, then you start mixing in all the social media sites and the networking sort of platforms. They're also harder to leverage. You know, we had uh, Ross Thompson on, episode 102 to talk about how he marketed zombie side. And he said, all he did was boost the post. And that was it. He reached like all the board gamers on Facebook. And that was just so easy to like get traction on the platform. And now it's like, obviously it's a lot more competitive. There's a lot of algorithm changes. I've made it difficult to just do organic stuff. So I think overall it's, it's harder and you're kind of going against the grain. It's almost like there, there needs to be systems in place that kind of like reset like monopolies on social media sites every so often because it, it, it's a very different. I think it's why we see the rise in TikTok because there is this kind of like virality to newer creators as like their algorithm sort of pushes small people and you kind of have this ability to be discovered, which isn't really there on other platforms. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of moving factors in, into this. So in terms of like reviewing your campaign, is there anything that kind of stands out that you would certainly do differently if you were to launch another campaign. I actually just wrote a blog about this. I'll see what I remember. Uh, yeah, a few things. Um, 
I'd be, I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on this too. You know, right off the top, I would say, I don't think I would ever do 30 days again. I just, I don't see the point. It's torture. It's, it's, yep. it's, <laughs> it's, it's torture. I mean, it's so, you know, you are so not completely there in your life during those 30 days. Like that's a month out of the year, you know, and am I going to do this, you know, once or twice a year if I take it seriously? Like, no, I, I think, I think a shorter campaign um, you know, maybe I'll slowly titrate it down. Maybe I'll do 21 days next time. But I'm thinking 14 is more the sweet spot, uh, at least from what I've seen. I, I mean, I rec- first of all, first time creator, do 30 days. Give yourself, you know, 30 days to learn everything you're possibly going to learn. You know, go through the grind, figure it out. It, it's worth it. I, you know, I, I definitely learned a lot from it. I, I don't think I would do that again. Um, I, actually, if you guys want to jump in, I'd be curious what you think about the 30-day campaign and whether that's necessary. Yeah, as uh, as someone who has run a 30-day campaign myself, I'll say, uh, well, so I first of all, to qualify what I'm about to say, I've had six children in my life, and I would I would call Deliverance my seventh child because it it's about as, so when Deliverance went to Kickstarter and the 30 days, 30 days later, it ended, it felt like I had been through the first 30 days of one of my children being born. Mm-hmm. That's how little energy I had. That's how shredded I was. Maybe I'm making it sound too drastic, but that's how I well, felt at the time. Sounds about right to me. I, I like that analogy. I've been using the analogy. It's like, you know, you have to go into detox. Uh, yeah, <laughs> your body is shot, but I like yours. I, I've, I've had two children myself and that that's, yeah, it's a very good, uh, very good analogy. That That is what it feels like that just mm-hmm. utter, exhaustion you've just got nothing left to give and you you need you need a couple days to reset and thinking about doing that to yourself you know one or two times a year every year that's kind of crazy like yeah yeah i i will say to kind of jump on another thing that you said about this i do think all all the dread that we just spoke aside i well if we factor all that in, I still think, I also still think that it's worthwhile for a first time creator to run a 30 day campaign and put themselves through that grind. Mm -hmm. I think that it's an essential part, you know, launching a company and and everything. The first thing that the the value of 30 days, as opposed to 14 or, or 21 is that you have your two days of explosion in the beginning or three days, maybe, and then your two to three days of explosion at the end. And then you have you've got what we call the mid campaign slump in the middle. That is the the grind. That's where your energy is taken out of you. I actually think energy is sapped out of you in two ways. One is adrenaline because you're so excited. You're on this crazy high high after funding your game, and you know it's or you think it's going to be a reality. Now you, I was going to say you know, but then again, you never you never really sad. know. You <laughs> mismanage your money, right? And so then you reach this, the doldrums or the mid campaign, which you have to grind for every single backer that you receive. I think that it's very important for first time creators to work to get on news or influencer radars. You know, that's where in that 30 day time frame, you know, get on every podcast you can get on every YouTube channel. You can talk to, you know, get on every TikTok influencers channel. You can, even if they're small and you know, so on. I think that um, you know there are there are companies that picked us up that would you know if we had let's say a fourteen day campaign for deliverance there are companies that would not have found us. Um, Did you have a survey and someone said I found you by googling? 
um like christian board games and like they found you like the last day of the campaign so that was completely yeah. organic you know so like that wouldn't that wouldn't have happened if you know if you had a shorter campaigns yeah yeah i think i think that you know um i want to say uh dallas jenkins of the chosen found us and shared us um in our fourth week you know between week three and four um which was a really nice surprise turns out that one of the people that backed our game happened to be his roommate from college uh, dallas jenkins is uh famous right now for doing the chosen the chosen is a big crowdfunded um tv series and there was that that happened and then um we got into crowd surfing which was big crowd surfing is um the dice tower tom vassal and z garcia and mike uh, Delicio, um, they they do. It used to be Sam Healy, but uh, they do an analysis of crowdfunding campaigns that are funded that are ending in a week or so. And so we we ended up making it onto their radar. You know that may have happened if it was shorter than thirty days, but you know we got onto a bunch of podcasts and other things too. So I think it's worthwhile. But when people know you and you have the ability to make a bigger splash for a second campaign. When you're well established, you've got ideally you've got fans from the first campaign that are all ready to talk about you. You've got your email list from the first go around. You've got a lot more going for you, and you go on day two, then you're more newsworthy right away. So the people that are going to pick you up are probably going to pick you up sooner. So that's why I also agree with you, Galen, that your future campaigns don't have to be 30 days. 24 is a great number. Uh, I've seen people do any from where from a uh, 10 day campaigns up to 21. Yeah, um, Golden Ring is an example of recently 10 day campaign. Yep. Mm. It's like they are extremely newsworthy and they had tons of places cover them before they even launched. And so launch day is, you know, everybody knows about it. And at least that's the idea. I know, I know, cause I did read, read your, your blog article and you, you talked about, uh, changing how you would do reviews. I mean, you wanted to talk about the advantages and disadvantages of review or previews for your game? Sure, sure. I think, um, I think I went in with a strategy of kind of getting as many previews as possible. Um, I mean, a couple things around that. You know, I, I got nine uh, prototypes printed uh, from the Game Crafter. Um, you know, that's not cheap. Uh, they were, they were about, you know, uh, 70 bucks a piece. And for some of them to get on a previewer schedule, I did the rush order. So now it's, you know, 140 instead, cause you got to double to get it you know, more quickly to you. I've I never swear. not doubled game crafters. It's like every single time I hear the urgent video. So urgent. <laughs> it scared the hell out of me the first time I did that. <laughs> And my speaker's up a little too much. Spoiler for anybody who's never <laughs> ordered yeah. Urgent from the Game Crafter. Yeah, be prepared. Turn turn down your speakers first. Um, but, uh, and, you know, I spent hours of my life um, also assembling those prototypes. You know, that might be something. I'm going to look into that next time, too, whether I just would rather kind of um, get something made from a manufacturer or maybe check in with a concierge service. Because... Uh, for anybody who doesn't know, when you have laser cut components, they have this soot on them, right? Mm-hmm. And um, the last, and they're and they're not assembled, and they're all in different bags, and so you can't just ship your game crafter game uh, to a, a re- reviewer. That's going to be a great way to get a terrible review, okay? Because they're going to yeah. have you know pitch black hands like them and working in the coal mines. So you have to you have to individually wipe off the soot on every single piece, 
and you have to assemble your game. And I had dual layered uh, scope boards, which is a beautiful part of the game, beautiful component, but I had to, you know, kind of, you know, wash every crease of those. And then I had to glue them together and make sure they still aligned right because the, the prototypes fit together like a jigsaw puzzle. Uh, I'm just doing a solid piece for the final game because of that experience. It's important to check these, you know, hold your game before you manufacture it. But, you know, that was hours of my life. So I, I want to cut down on that, uh, you know, however I do that, whether that's less prototypes or whether that's doing that differently. Uh, but then, you know, I had these nine prototypes. Uh, each one of them probably hit at least two places, some three. Um, and a couple of things. One, it was a lot of work, um, you know, just kind of staying on top of people. Uh, they're having problems with, a, you know, you're in the middle of work and you see your email, like, I don't understand this rule. I'm ready to give up on this game. Like, oh, you know, and, and I'm, at my day job, I'm a therapist, right? And then like now I'm in my own head, I'm not thinking about other people's problems. <laughs> I'm like, you have to follow up with a lot of people. You got to forward the postage. You got to answer questions. And so you're, you're taking on a lot. And I didn't get a lot from it. I had a couple big profile reviews, bigger profile reviews. You know, I got... And, and those were all people who um, were free and, you know, elected to do it because they liked the game. Like Alex from Board Game Co. was probably my biggest one. Like I was, he's my favorite. I was thrilled that he took it on uh, and was willing to do that, played it on TTS and then uh, get, did the preview. So that was nice. But, um, you know, and a couple paid previews, especially to get, you know, some playthrough videos and some live ones, I think are important. But mostly I think I overdid it. Uh, and I also, um, I brought too many in. Um, I did a lot the the week before the launch as opposed to right on the launch day, I was very, I, I was very worried about day one. I really wanted that day one success. And I kind of got, I couldn't see very far past that, to be totally honest. I, I so I, I put a lot of my uh, eggs in that particular basket. Um, and I think, I think I, I would have been better served by hitting the day before or the day of, and then, you know, have less, um, I, you know, same amount through the campaign, but kind of less preloaded. So um, it was a lot of extra work for not a lot of extra payoff. So, you know, quali quality over quantity for that, I think next time, be a little bit more care careful about vetting some of my previewers. I had a couple bad experiences, uh, you know, prototype, I'm not going to get back, frustrating things like that. Um, yeah, I, I feel like while I did live this uh, very similar experience, printing my prototypes cost uh, 250 bucks a piece and I printed nine of them and then um, sent to reviewers and they all got about two or three uh, uses and I received in the end I received five back mm. which was actually I mean I was pretty happy with that but four of them disappeared into the ether they were all completely shredded when they came back to me <laughs> they oh, were wow. just like components everywhere so yeah I I think so I, I received advice from Rob Geislinger. He's currently the uh, chief marketing officer or actually chief operations officer of Arcane Wonders now. But at the time he worked, um, I, th I believe he worked for Arcane Wonders doing Foundations of Rome. And we met at Gamma back in 2020, in March 2020, the Game Manufacturer Association trade show. And he, had, he was just uh, fresh off of this $1.1 million Kickstarter called Foundations of Rome. And he pointed to a major part of their success as um, not loading everything for day one, but having something that they do every day, every two, every three days that they can point to during their campaign. So he was, a, he in fact, probably still is a very big proponent of spreading out the reviewers. And um, I really like that strategy too. 
I think that it's uh I feel you though on day one where you're like, I, I need to fund right mm-hmm. away, you know, as quickly as I possibly can. So all the rest of the momentum of a campaign in the board game space builds off of your day one results. So if you didn't fund most of the way on day one, then you could be in big trouble. And so I, I understand kind of preloading it. I would have, um, I think I, I spread mine out a little bit more. Um, I would have definitely been a little more organized. I I did not factor in the cost of postage uh, (laughs) as a marketing expense because, you know, I wanted a reviewer to send it to another reviewer, but I also committed to paying for all of the postage for them to do that. And uh, most of them were very happy to send it on. And, um, I, you know, that, that really added up, um, that ended yep. up being like, you know, $600 or, or, or so to get all those sent to different reviewers. I think the, uh, the stress of maybe not funding on the first day or not funding the first 48, that's, that's a real scary uh, thing, you know, and I, I could see, you know, why you, why you weren't able to see past that, that first day. Was that why? Does that kind of articulate why? Yeah, I think you know, this is what, something I talked about in the blog. It's worth, you know, talking about as well is there's kind of this thing too, where you, um, as you prepare for, a, you know, to go on Kickstarter and you, you read the blogs and you read the books and you prepare, you're really, you know, you're focused on the, on the campaign. And I, and I was really focused on that day one. Cause it seemed like, again, you know, that if you get the momentum of funding in that first 48 hours, that's, you know, that's what your campaign is going to do. That's going to be the thing that pushes it forward. And there's a way in which you have all the time in the world to learn all that stuff, as long as you're willing to wait until you start that campaign. But once that campaign's live, everything else you have to learn on the fly. And it becomes a lot more difficult if you don't have a plan. Uh, so yeah, that's another one for next time. I, I will have a better mid-campaign plan. I will do less things on the fly. Uh, you know, I'm also learning that now, you know, as I'm jumping in and I'm getting my backer kit pledge manager. Uh, together. There's so many things to consider in that. And and that's the kind of, I mean, it's, it's not the sexy stuff, right? Like that's not, that's the part in the book I'd skip over. I'm, I'll deal with that when I deal with it, you know, sales tax, who cares, you know, it's all... <laughs> and, uh, and I'm having to deal with it all now. There's a lot of, a lot of, I, I talked with, um, you know, Dave Beck who did distilled and it was funny. You know, I had this analogy of, you know, at the end of the, um, in the end of a Kickstarter feeling like, you know, stepping off a roller coaster. And he added, he said, it's like stepping off a roller coaster and then immediately being handed a mop and being told you have to go clean a bathroom because now you got to do all this other stuff while you're all off balance, you know, all these other things you need to follow up on. So, yeah. Um, yeah and, you know, so learning, learning things the hard way this time around that I will be able to anticipate better and hopefully help my readers anticipate better. Uh, next time around. You know, I, I wanted to circle back and and expand on a topic that you had shared. Um, we were talking about the uh, reduced price, you know, versus a pay what you want model. And it just kind of got me thinking about the, you know, what, what you did what, uh, by giving the, the tier that in essence was a loss leader for you, just so that people could have the game that wouldn't otherwise be able to afford it. I think that built a lot of goodwill between you and the, I would say the community, the board game community as a whole. But then you offered the reduced price, the $35 price. You enhanced the value of your $48 pledge by kind of making an expansion, like a small expansion, a part of that pledge tier. 
and then you reduce the price to $35. And um, which I think is smarter than going with pay what you want. I, I could expand on that in a second, but the reduced price, I think that that, that really helped. You made 62 sales of uh, during, on that reduced price. Mm-hmm. And you said that you really didn't lose any backers in the higher tier, uh, which was $48, which I think is fantastic. And I feel that even though backers could have reduced their pledge to get the same game or close close to it for a little bit cheaper. I think what you did was a really important lesson for everybody, no matter what level you're playing at, is that you can make up the difference in a perceived value. So people thought your game was worth 35 bucks, not $48. But then you you up the value a little bit in that $48 pledged here. And I really feel like the biggest difference you made was the perceived value. You made your backers feel listened to and they, I believe, wanted to support you. They were like, I, I like what you're doing and I want to support what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of value, a lot of lesson to be taken from making it more about the experience than just about the actual product, you know, because you're transparent, you listen to your audience and you make tangible changes based on your attentiveness to what their needs were. And you communicated that to them and say, Hey, these are the changes we're making, or this is what we're adding because you guys shared this with me and I'm listening to your feedback. I think that that goes a very long way, very long way with backers. I think another I, key is when you have your, I suppose like for better terms, a nonprofit pledge, the one for people who are struggling, you put a limit on it so it wasn't abused. I think that's key because you don't want bad actors coming in and just, you know, hogging all of those pledges because they just want to get a discount. So I think that that's that what you did was well-intentioned because you worked it out financially. I can actually do this and you put a limit on it. And then when you got more backers, you could then increase it knowing that you were able to still fulfill I promise and the campaign wouldn't be negatively affected by it. So, and that's key if you're, if someone is listening and they want to implement something similar is you do want to put a limit to it and be very intentional how that is sort of allocated and, and done. Yep. Yeah. So if I had people who reached out to me like, oh, you know, I, I missed on the super saver pledge or they're more coming back, you know, this is my situation. Some people share their situation. Like I, I did get personal stories from people, which was really not necessary, but it was nice it let me know that, no, this isn't just, you know, everybody can get one's going to get one. Um, you know, so I would I would private message them and I would also tell my Facebook group well ahead of when I was going to put more out so that the, you know, the right people <laughs> could jump yeah. in there and get it. And also incentivize people to pay attention, uh, you know, to, to follow the updates and things like that, because that would be coming around the corner. I, I didn't really get the sense that a lot of people were taking advantage of it that shouldn't have been. I certainly had a number of people who were skeptical about it uh, and would say things like, oh, you know, so what's a financial hardship? Like, uh, you know, I, I want to, you know, can't afford my Porsche payment this month or something, you know, and there, there, was, there was certainly some skepticism and, you know, and some pushback on that. And honestly, you know, my response was simply like, I'll, I'll, I'll take that chance. If, if that person feels like they qualify and they want to do it, I, you know, on the other end of things, you know, having, uh, requiring some sort of, you know, proof or some sort of screening, it just felt very demeaning and unnecessary. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, I mean, what I would say, and, and nobody has to believe this, you know, I, I, I did it to get people games that otherwise wouldn't be able to, that, that was, that was the intention. And, uh, with that though, like it's interesting. So, you know, that $25 level, I mean, that's, um, that's a little bit more than uh, what I would sell it to a retailer, right? So I'm not really, 
I, I did it at a place that was safe, right? And I also limited it. I, I, I knew what I could afford. Um, and, you know, there was that question out there, you know, would this be uh, sales that I would otherwise be getting at, a, you know, the higher level or would these this be people who wouldn't back? And, and I think ultimately it was mostly people who wouldn't back. So I think it was a win-win there. But yeah, you know, it it did build some goodwill. So that, all that being said, where can people find what you're working on next, Gavin? And um, what's the, the plans for the future? If people want to look up Super Snipers on Kickstarter, uh, very, very soon I should have the late pledge open and then the uh, pledge manager open uh, early next year. Uh, www.galensgames.com is my official website, and you can kind of check out some other things I'm working on there. I do need to do some updating, but I'll do that. Um, Yeah, and uh, you can look up Galen's Games Designs, uh, Galen's Game Designs, uh, Linktree, uh, and get connected to everything, our Discord, Facebook groups, etc. Suppose the best thing to do is join your email list and then you can send out a, an email blast when things are up and ready. There you go. Yes, going. thank you. Thank you, Sean. That's what I hire you for. No, <laughs> well, it's been great to have, have you on and your sharing your unique experience. Really appreciate and uh, yeah, appreciate your insights. And uh, we'll include the, the links in the show notes for people to check out your, your content. Appreciate it. Right. So I guess we'll, we'll end by virtual Richard finishing us off. So we'll see you on the next one. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. For more resources, articles, and to listen to past podcasts, please visit us at crowdfundingnerds.com. Thank you all again for listening to this week's episode, and we'll see you next week. Stay nerdy.